Today's scripture reading is found from the book of 1 Peter, chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. If you are able to, please stand for the reading of God's word. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, we've come to a passage in 1 Peter, verses 7 through 11, uh, that uh, close off a section that focuses entirely on how to live as God's people in the world. It's a section that began back in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, and extends all, it's really the heart of the book, 2, 11 to 12, through 4, 7 to 11. So jump back, if you've got your Bibles, take a look. I'll just reread for us chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So after establishing really our identity, who you are as Christians, the first part of the book, here in 2, 11 and 12, he launches off into instructions on how to live in the world. And, and that's what we get right there in verses 11 and 12. Verses 7 through 11 of chapter 4, he, he will end that section by talking about what it means to live together as God's people in the world. So that's where we're headed in this next section. And he begins that section, those five verses, with that phrase, the end of all things is at hand. Now, what does he mean? Peter means not that we expected or he expected Jesus to come back in his lifetime or in the lifetime of the people who he was writing to. Rather, what he was saying was that there's nothing else left to happen in redemptive history, right? Jesus has come. He has died. He has risen. The only thing left to happen, the end of the story, so to speak, is for Jesus Christ to return. And Jesus could return at any time. That's, that's Peter's point. So in light of that, Peter is saying in these verses that we're going to look at over the next few weeks, Peter is saying we need to maintain a certain perspective about reality. History is headed somewhere. There's a telos, there's an end, there's a goal that centers on Jesus Christ. He, in his return to complete the work he began, is imminent. That's what's real. And that's what ought to shape the way that we think and live. But it doesn't most of the time, does it? We do tend to live as if the end will never come. As if the hardship, as if the suffering, as if the, the disappointment, as if the sorrow will never end. Or we live as if the end has already come. As if this present world and everything that we're experiencing right now is as good as it'll ever get. Or we keep ourselves so mind-numbingly busy that we avoid having to think about the end at all. We avoid having to think about ultimate realities. We avoid having to think about our own end. When we live that way, the first thing we throw out the window is prayer. Communion with God. Slowing down long enough to communicate with him in prayer. 
that we might, as Peter will say in chapter 5, verse 7, cast all our anxiety upon him because he cares for us. So before Peter gets into his final instructions about how to live together, he calls us to slow down and to think straight and to pray, all in light of the reality that the end of all things is at hand. So we're going to slow down in our study of 1 Peter. Over the next four weeks, we're going to look at these five verses in chapter 4, verses 7 through 11, because that phrase, the end of all things is at hand, governs everything that he says in verses 7 through 11. So this morning, the end of all things is at hand, so pray. The next time we look at 1 Peter, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, verse 8, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. After that, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, verses 10 and the first part of verse 11, use your gifts to serve one another. And then after that, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, end of verse 11, let God be glorified through Jesus Christ in all things, because to him belongs dominion and glory forever and ever. So that's where we're going to be headed over the next several weeks. But this morning, quite simply, just two things. Keep the right perspective and pray. But before we jump into that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do ask that you be with us now. We thank you for uh, your promise that uh, wherever your people are gathered together, your spirit is present with us. We thank you for your word and the promise that we have in Scripture that it is powerful and effective um, as you take it and apply it to our hearts. And so we pray that you would do that by your spirit, um, that you would bring change. Lord, that especially you would help us to think right about reality and to make room in our lives for prayer. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So there's a call in this verse to think rightly about reality. Uh, Peter says in verse 7, be self-controlled and sober-minded. Karen Jobes in her commentary on 1 Peter says these words actually, they go together to say the same thing. And the point that Peter is making here is he's giving us a description of what he wants our mental state to be. That together, these words describe what our overall mindset must be. That we, that we need to be clear-headed about reality. That we need to have the right perspective. The right perspective on what? Well, Peter says, all things. Verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. Therefore, think rightly about reality. That word all things is actually at the beginning of the sentence in the Greek. is a way of emphasizing, when I say all things, Peter is saying, I mean all things. I mean everything. Reality is we're experiencing right now. It's at the end of it is at hand. And so therefore, think rightly about these things. What does it mean to have a right perspective on reality? Having a right perspective on reality means we know that history is headed somewhere. It's not random. It's not cyclical. It's a story. It's a story with an author. It's a story that has a beginning, a middle, and an end. 
It's a story that centers on Jesus Christ. Having a right perspective on reality means that we know our place on the timeline of this story. A story that began with creation and the fall of humanity into sin. A story that has as its middle the resurrection of Jesus Christ that we celebrated two weeks ago. A story that is progressing toward its end with Jesus' return. And a story in which we live right now between the middle and the end. Having a right perspective on reality means not just that we understand our place in the timeline on the story, but that we understand our role in this story. That as Christians, we are already part of Christ's coming kingdom. That consequently, we are, as Peter's been telling us throughout this letter, aliens and exiles. We don't quite fit in this world order. That we're called now to make that coming kingdom of God visible so that by God's grace, people will see the quality of our lives and of our life together. And especially the hope that characterizes us in the face of hardship and affliction. A hope that extends beyond the grave because we know that there is more than what is seen. That by God's grace will lead people to desire God's kingdom and chiefly to desire the King, Jesus Christ. Having a right perspective on reality means that we rest in that glorious reality that the end of all things is at hand. That Jesus Christ could in fact return at any moment or at any moment we could go to be with him. That's a reality that we're called to rest in. It is actually a good thing. Better by far to be with Jesus, Paul tells us. Having a right perspective on reality means that we long for that day when we'll be with Jesus. With Paul in 2 Timothy 4.8, we're among those who long for his appearing. J.C. Ryle in his book on practical religion asked this question, are we living as if we long to see Jesus again? It's a question that's simple but profound. As I look back over the course of my days or my week, would you say, Mark, I see you living as one who longs for the return of Jesus Christ, who longs to be with him? So that's the right perspective Peter's calling us to have. Why do we lack it? Well, we're busy, man, <laughs> right? There's all number of things that we could point to, but I, I think the thing that's most pressing for us in our day and age is our chronic busyness. Now, of course, beneath busyness and any other symptom that may present itself, there's that underlying affliction or cause that is unbelief. Unbelief. But what's presenting for so many of us is busyness. I mean, what do we tend to say? My life is so crazy, I can't even think straight, right? Our thinking, our, our very selves disappear in the whirlwind of daily life. Be still and know that I am God, Psalm 46, is the hardest command that we could to obey. It's like I couldn't even imagine doing that. Why are we so busy? 
Well, we're steeped in a culture that idolizes busyness, for one thing. If the, if the dark side of advertising is promising to meet the deepest longings of our hearts with whatever product is being offered, then we must deeply desire to be known as those who are busy. Uh, back in 2014, there was a, a Cadillac commercial. In fact, I read about this in an article. An article in Oxford University Press that was published on behalf of the Journal of Consumer Research, okay? Titled, Conspicuous Consumption of Time When Busyness and Lack of Leisure Time Become a Status Symbol. Or we might say, an idol. Cadillac Super Bowl commercial from 2014, the, the, uh, the part of the text of it, you know, sound, what you heard if you watched the commercial was this. Other countries, they work, they stroll home, they stop by the cafe. They take August off. Off! Why aren't you like that? Why aren't we like that? Because we are crazy, driven, hardworking believers. That's why. And the article points out, the, the, the research article points out that back in the 90s, Cadillac's, you know, kind of tagline was, this is the only way to travel. You know, the, the idea was you've got this leisure time in which you can do all these things and cattle, man, having a caddy is the way to go. But now, that's been replaced with ads that feature busy individuals who work long hours and have very limited time for travel. And a Cadillac is the status, it's the proof that you live that kind of busy life. 2016, there was a Wall Street Journal ad campaign that featured celebrities who complained about their busy lives with the slogan, people who don't have time make time to read the Wall Street Journal. Right? We live in a culture and we're steeped in it. We swim in it. This is the water we swim in. It's a water, a culture that says if you're busy, it's a sign of your importance. Oh, then there's also, of course, uh, you know, our stage of life realities that we deal with. And, and when, you, when you get that kind of, um, you know, inherent idolatry around busyness and you mix that with the uh, inherent idolatry that's present in every stage of life, you get this perfect storm, right? It doesn't matter what stage of life you're in. If you're a high school student, a college student, there are inherent idolatries around that. I'm so busy because I have to study or I have to work in order to pay for school or whatever the case may be. Newly married, I'm so busy because now I have this other person in my life and I need to care for that person and we need to figure out how to do life together and that's something entirely new. Or I have young children and, you know, nothing more need be said. Or middle school children or high school children, whatever the case may be. You know, that brings its own craziness. And then, you know, you know if you're retired or if you're not retired, you hear retired people say it all the time, I've never been more busy now that I'm retired. So even being retired has this inherent uh, idolatry, I would say, that results in busyness. How can we regain a right perspective on reality if the chief problem is that we're so darn busy? And the answer is, slow down. Make time, especially for prayer. That's where Peter's heading in this passage. 
How do we gain a right perspective on reality? Make time. Make time. Create space to slow down and be with Jesus. So what we talked about at our men's uh, breakfast this past Saturday. Um, you know, I pointed out that if anyone could say, I'm too busy to pray, it was Jesus. Right? You talk about stage of life issues. Jesus is in his savior of the world mode. Way too busy to pray right now. But Luke chapter 5, verses 15 and 16, but now even more the report about him went abroad and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities, but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. And it is a reminder to us of something that we know is true, but we need to hear. We are not busier than Jesus. Now, the answer, you know, to that, the thing that we always try to do is, and, and bemoan that we can't do is achieve balance in our lives. And what I want to say is throw the idea of balance out the window. It's a myth. Pursue instead rhythms. Healthy rhythms in your life. Daily, weekly, monthly or quarterly, but especially daily and weekly rhythms in which you slow down to commune with Jesus. You think of the daily rhythm, you know, it's, I'm talking about quiet time, right? But, but don't see that as just a time that needs to be filled with doing things, but rather as a time in which you are carving out space to be with Jesus, to draw near to him in prayer to be before his word and, and hear from him and just be with him. To begin to do what Jesus says when he says, abide in me. To be able to know the glory and the joy of having that promise experienced in your life. Draw near to me, God says, and I will draw near to you. Daily rhythm, weekly rhythm. God provides one in seven. He provides a Sabbath for us. It's a gift. It's not meant to be a burden. I mean, if you knew that there was a Christmas present still under the Christmas tree and it's May, you'd probably want to think about opening it. God's given this Sabbath, this one in seven, as a gift to us to slow down and commune with him. Let me encourage you to open the gift. So you can slow down and commune with Christ in that space that he provides. And we talked last Saturday about strategies for, you know, monthly and other rhythms in your life. But, but just from a daily and a weekly level, not, I got to have this quiet time and I got to do Sabbath so I can check these boxes and, and hopefully God will be more happy with me and bless me. But recognize, no, I need, I need these rhythms in my life where I slow down and commune with Christ. Now, I know what you're thinking. I'm too busy for that. I've allowed my days and my weeks to be so filled up that it's too late. That ship has sailed, Mark. <laughs> Listen, if you knew that you had a debilitating illness, or if you knew that your spouse and you both shared a debilitating illness, that if left untreated would continue to be more and more debilitating such that there was less and less of you available 
for your spouse and, and for your children and for just doing and living everyday life. But if you knew that there was a treatment, you'd sacrifice in order to get that treatment. You'd make changes in your lifestyle if that was needed in order to experience the cure for that which is so debilitating in our lives. And you know where I'm going with this, right? What do we need more than anything else to deal with the pressures and the difficulties of life? We need Jesus. And, and, and not just in a kind of I put my faith in Jesus idea, but I am communing with Christ. Again, same book by J.C. Ryle talks about the, the distinction, if you will, between union with Christ and communing with Christ. Right? When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you're united to him. That's union with him. But enjoying fellowship with him, knowing what it means to abide in him and he in you, that's communing with Jesus. And that's something entirely different. J.C. Ryle puts it this way, let it be distinctly understood that union with Christ is one thing and communion another. There can be no communion with the Lord Jesus without union first, but unhappily there may be union with the Lord Jesus and afterwards little or no communion at all. He that has union with Christ does well, but he that enjoys communion with him does far better. And I just, I just think in my life and in many of your lives as I've gotten to know you, there's union and praise God for that, but there's very little communion. Jesus is offering himself to us, not just for salvation, although that would surely be more than enough than we deserve, but for actual experience of his grace in our hearts now, communing with him. So it's not hard, therefore, to understand why Peter says to do this, to gain right perspective on reality for the sake of our prayers. Here in verse 7. So I want to talk about praying a little bit, but I want to do that from the Lord's Prayer in Luke chapter 11. So if you have your Bibles open, if you're using one of the Bibles in the uh, pew rack in front of you, it should be on page 869. So remember, you know, one of the disciples asked Jesus, uh, you know, teach us how to pray. And it says in verse 11, or verse 1 of chapter 11, um, or verse 2, he said to them. So he's teaching his disciples. So Peter's probably there, right? Peter was one of his disciples. It may have been Peter that said, Lord, teach us how to pray. We don't know. But in all likelihood, when Peter said in 1 Peter 4, verse 7, for the sake of your prayers, he knew what he was talking about when it comes to the pattern that Jesus gave us for prayer. So back in Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 13, we get in these verses a pattern, not a prescription, a pattern for praying. So let's just look at it real quick as we wrap up. A pattern for prayer. Verse 2, a pattern for approaching God. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father. We take that so for granted. But this is Yahweh. This is the God of the universe. This is the one who formed the sea and the dry lands as well. And Jesus is saying, you may go before him and address him as 
father. Don't, in our parlance, approach God as if he were a boss who wasn't a good one and you were needing to ask him for a raise or for some time off. This is a father who is always ready to scoop up his children into his arms. Jesus gives us a pattern for adoring God right there in verse 2. Right here, we get a call back into reality, a call back into a right perspective on things. When, when Jesus says, pray this way, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Right? This is a call back into what's real. Pray that that which is ultimately true will be seen to be such, that God's name will be hallowed. It is worthy of all praise and glory. May it be that people ascribe all praise and glory to God. And as we pray that way, we can pray, may your name be hallowed in my life as well. A pattern for adoring God, a pattern for accepting God's will. In Matthew's account of the Lord's Prayer, Matthew chapter 6, you have that familiar phrase, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I think the difference, you know, that Matthew has that and Luke doesn't is just a way of reinforcing that this isn't a prescription, it's a pattern that Jesus provides for praying. And the point of the thy will petition is that we're acknowledging, Lord, you know what I need. Your will be done. You know what I need. Tim Keller, concerning prayer, says this, God always gives you what you would have asked for if you knew what he knows. It's a great way to think about answered prayer. God always gives you what you would have asked for if you know what he knows, if you knew what he knows. So a pattern for accepting God's will, a pattern for asking for God to provide. You see that all throughout. God, may your kingdom come. God, give us each day our daily bread. Help us to remember that we rely on you for everything. God, forgive us our sins, that, you know, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. If, you, if we had time, we go look at Matthew 18 in that parable in which Jesus teaches that we demonstrate that we are forgiven people by forgiving people. Ask that God would keep you from falling into sin. End of verse 4, lead us not into temptation, not because we're trying to change God's mind, but because we know our own hearts that we're prone to wander. And we're asking him to not let us go where we're prone to go. So Jesus gives a pattern for approaching, adoring, accepting, and asking things of God in prayer. In verses 5 through 13, he gives us a couple parables. And I'm, for the sake of time, I'm not going to go as deeply into them as I would love to. But in verses 5 through 9, that parable about the, uh, the friend who needs to ask for bread is simply a way of telling, Jesus telling us, be bold in your praying. Be bold. In the same way, you know, that that, that that man had to choose to either bring shame on his family by not providing for this middle-of-the-night guest or go wake up his neighbor and ask for bread, and not only wake up his neighbor, but the whole family as well because they all slept in one same room. Jesus is saying, listen, if... If even an unhappy friend will provide bread for you if you knock on the door in the middle of the night, how much more will a loving, gracious father respond to that boldness by providing what you need? The next parable, you know, he talks about there at the end of the passage, uh, verse 11, following with father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent, just a little 
teeny parable in which Jesus reminds us that, look, even if a, even if a not good father would seek to provide in some way for his children, how much more will your heavenly father provide for you? Pray with confidence, Jesus is saying. Pray with boldness. Pray with confidence. Why? Because God is a loving father who delights to meet the needs of his children. He is a gracious God who has the desire and the ability to respond in the way that is best for you. And then Jesus tells us at the end of this passage, at the end of verse 13, here's what it means for Jesus to give you ultimately what's best for you. How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So in a way now, we've come back full circle to what Peter is saying in chapter 4, verse 7 of 1 Peter. What does it mean to think rightly about reality? It's to be near to Jesus. It's to have the right perspective on what is true and what is real and how it all centers on Jesus. And so as we come before the Father in prayer, we enjoy communion with God and communion with Christ. 1 Peter 4, verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. There's an offer here if we will slow down and accept it. To have our hearts and not just our minds drawn back to what is real and what is true. All the things that center on Jesus Christ the fulfillment of history, the end being achieved, all things being made new. But even now, if we will slow down and enjoy loving communion with Jesus Christ, a peace now that surpasses all understanding. You know, Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, um, Jesus, there's that famous line, you've heard it. Uh, maybe in an evangelistic context, you heard it, right? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone would open the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. And, um, you know, we've maybe even someone used that with us or we used it with someone else. Where we said, listen, Jesus wants a relationship with you. And so if you will put your trust in him, this is a way of him saying he will come in and dine with you, which of course in that day and age meant intimate fellowship and, and communion. And so won't you put your trust in Jesus Christ? And that's all true and good. But in Revelation 3, Jesus is talking to Christians. He's saying to us, open the door. Slow down. Spend time with me. And I will come in and spend time with you. And you will get a little foretaste now of what it will mean to be in my presence for all eternity. Slow down. Create space. Make time. So that in prayer, before your loving Heavenly Father, you will regain and maintain a right perspective on all that is real and true. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would help us as we leave here and go back into our day and our week, remembering instead that this is your day and it's your week. This is a day that you have provided for us to gather together as your people to worship and to enjoy rest and all that is good on this day. 
And each day that you give us throughout the course of the week is a gift from you in which we're called to serve you and, and do good work in your name, but not apart from that loving communion that we can enjoy with you as we slow down and come before you in prayer. So Lord, would you help us to do so? Would you, would you help us to hold one another accountable to that end? That we would recognize how vital it is that we slow down and be present with you. That we come before you in prayer, that we hear from you through your word. And that out of that communion, live faithfully for you in this world. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.